you've already received this morning. Uh, it is fantastic to be together. Uh, there were a small group of us in person and a few more online that welcomed the sun as it rose upon this day, praying for you, praying for those in our world. And so thank you to those who were able to do that. And it was a precious um, hour, 45 minutes or so, of worship this morning from 6.30 a.m. Anyone ready for good news? Yes, absolutely. We love good news, do we not, right? Um, I'm grateful when it comes, right? It's that, it's that friend who had cancer um, and, and then is declared to be cancer-free. That's good news, right? Um, it, it's, uh, it's the young couple who say, we're going to get married. That's good news, you know? Or, or, or the, the, the couple who say, we're expecting. We say that is good news, you know? Yay, yay, we're happy for you, you know? But when there's been a safe, happy, healthy delivery of a new baby, we say that is good news. I think it's one of the reasons I love, I look forward to Easter Sunday so much. Because if ever there was a time when we get to shout and declare good news, this is the morning for it. I need to make some assumptions here this morning for those who are here in person or those who are with us online. I'm going to assume that uh, there's something that has compelled you be with us this Easter Sunday morning. Uh, maybe it's something about the day that, that resonates from your childhood. I don't know what would draw you. Uh, maybe you don't worship with other Christians on a regular basis. Or maybe this is just kind of tick, kicking some tires and asking some questions. But I'm going to assume that you're here because something has drawn you, and I'm going to assert that that is Jesus. Because at the heart of Resurrection Sunday, there is Really, really good news. We're drawn to good news. One of the several reasons that I look forward to Easter Sunday is this good news that Christ is risen. And that historic response from the church has lifted the hearts of millions over the course of the past two millennia. Because it's really, really good news. In the New Testament, the word for good news in most of our English translations is gospel. Gospel. Evangelisimon uh, is the, the, the Greek, uh, which gets translated gospel. It means good news. The, the New Testament opens with four good news books. The gospel, the good news, according to Matthew, gospel according to Mark, gospel according to Luke, gospel according to John. Because their retelling of the account of Jesus is good news. This morning, I, I, I want to remind you of this good news. The Apostle Paul, he came to believe the good news that Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and others were sharing around the known world. Paul came to believe that good news, and he wrote a letter to a church that he helped start in the ancient city of Corinth. We've got two copies, of, or two different letters, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul writes to that church and he says this, I want to remind you of the gospel, good news, that I preached to you, on which you have taken your stand, because by it you are being saved. This morning, I want to remind you of the good news 
the, for some of you, this is going to be a, a reminder of something that you have known for many years, maybe decades. And maybe for others, it's a, a first encounter with this news that professes to be really, really good. So here's where we're going to go this morning. If you'll give me the next 20 minutes or so, we're going to explore three questions. Why is this news good? Secondly, how is this news good? And then the third question is this. What does the good news mean? Why is it good? How is it good? What does it mean? So Lord Jesus, maybe you just pray with me for a minute here. Lord Jesus, would you come and teach us concerning the hope that is ours to be found in you this Resurrection Sunday. Genuine encouragement. Pray for those who are maybe dialed in online, desperate for encouragement. Would you meet with us? Would you teach us? Would you show us how to approach the coming days with you? Holy Spirit, just come and prompt our learning. Help us to better understand and know Jesus and how to live in light of a genuine experience that we would we long to have with you this morning, Jesus. Pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. I'm going to read kind of a few verses at a time. We'll talk about it. And we're going to kind of keep going and reading through. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1. I'm going to start in the New International Version if you're looking it up digitally, but I'm going to kind of flip back and forth between a couple of different English translations from the original Greek. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1, Paul writes this to the church in Corinth. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you believed in vain. So why does Paul call this good news? Well, he tells us right in verse 2, by this gospel you are saved, or you are being saved. Now to the astute, the logical question is, saved from what? Which that is to say that the good news is preceded by the bad news. God made you, he loves you. He knows how, according to his amazing design of you, you would and should, could lead your best life. The fact is, the bad news is, apart from God, we face disaster. It might not seem like it. So you run into a year of pandemic, perhaps. Maybe that's a wake-up call. The truth is that living life apart from God, we face disaster. Humanity is in a state of separation from God. This is really, really bad news. You can see it illustrated in, in, in the life of, of a toddler. Anyone ever taken care of a toddler? No! Special toy? Mine! Right? Like, there's this betrayal from our youngest years that there's, there's something going, wrong going on in here. Like, we, from our earliest days, are utterly self-focused. It's, it's all about me. 
It's all about mine. And when it matures into adulthood, it's all about me wanting to be the boss of me. I, I, will, I will command my own life. Thank you very much. And even when love is offered to me, well, I'll accept it, but on my own terms. No. Mine. Conveys an attitude that comes to trip up humanity right through adulthood. And the Bible calls this tendency, whatever our various experience of it, the Bible calls this tendency sin. The writers of the Old Testament and the writers of the New Testament agree that sin separates us from one another and it separates us from God. Here's what Jesus' close friend John has to say about this bad news. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. If we claim we don't have any sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from everything we've done wrong. The gospel is the good news, but the bad news can be undone. We liken sin to a poison that destroys us, eventually killing us. The bad news is the diagnosis. The good news is that God, through Jesus, has provided the antidote. Apostle Paul, he says in verse 2, chapter 1 Corinthians 15, You are being saved through the gospel if you hold on to the message I preach to you, unless somehow you believed it for nothing. It's good news because the news will save you if you hold on to the message. In other words, there's no point in beginning and then giving up. Paul wants us to remember this good news, that it saves us, and then keep trusting this good news as the center, as the focus of our lives. So why is it good news? Well, it's good news because it will save you. But how is it good news? Paul's response here is effectively this. This is good news because it is reliable. Over the past few years, we've faced more than our fair share, maybe, of unreliable news, right? Oh my goodness. When I've thought that I really wanted to get at something, there's been enormous value in being able to speak to somebody who's very close to it. When I, when I don't want to know what's going on in the ERs of our nation, or the ones I can have access to, I contact a friend who's a surgeon, a physician, in an ER. It's really nice to hear some eyewitness account of what's taking place. Here in verse 3, Paul says effectively the same thing. Paul has been preaching a message that he himself received from eyewitnesses, from people who were there, boots on the ground, people who walked with Jesus, talked with Jesus, learned from Jesus themselves. And he writes this, verse 3, I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the scriptures said. In one sense, Paul was a bit of a latecomer to the following Jesus thing in the first century. Disciples who had walked with Jesus, uh, 
you know, guys like Peter and James and John, and Matthew. There were 12 who were particularly close to Jesus. Another group of 70 who, who were intimate with him, went out, served in the name of Jesus. All of them were Jewish, although they were very diverse. Simon the Zealot was this guy who had been prepared to take up arms to get violent against Rome, which was occupying and oppressing Israel. On the other hand, that's Simon the Zealot. On the other hand is Matthew, also called Levi, who actually worked for Rome. He was a tax collector. You want to talk about despised. I mean, as far as his own people were concerned, he was, he was a traitor. He was a traitor. And yet these people were drawn to Jesus, and despite their political differences, they found a common denominator in Jesus. They would even be in the same boat together at times. Oh my goodness. Paul was not among that group. He was a latecomer to the gospel. In fact, it was two or three years after that first Easter weekend that Paul had a radical arresting encounter with Jesus. Paul was this highly trained Jewish scholar. He'd been a member of the Pharisee sect. If you've read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the Pharisees didn't like Jesus very much. Uh, Most of them had rejected him. Some of them even plotted, joined the plot to murder Jesus. Paul was too young to kind of be a part of that crowd, but he was learning from that crowd. He was a student under that group of men. And when, when, the, when, the, when after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, the church just took off, like it started growing like crazy, Paul uh, began to dedicate his life to shutting it down, arrest them, abuse them, even stand to giving sanction to the murder of some of them. This was, it was two or three years into all of this that Paul had this miraculous encounter with the resurrected and then ascended to heaven, Lord Jesus Christ. Lights from heaven, the voice of Jesus speaking to him in an audible way. He was blinded by the experience, taken into Damascus. And over those next few days, the trajectory of his life utterly changed as he encountered Jesus. First he saw him, and then He had to do exactly what you and I do. He relied on the testimony of those who had walked with Jesus in order to begin to get to know and follow Jesus. My point is this. Once his eyes had been opened, he had to rely on the testimony that we just heard that he passed on to the church in Corinth, and I'm passing on to you now. This first part of 1 Corinthians 15 seems to be, scholars think that it is kind of a creed. It's a a statement of truth that people would read aloud, affirming together what they had come to know to be utterly reliable. So this this is a statement of belief that goes back to the very earliest of the early church. Let me just read it for you. Verse 3. I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. So here's the beginning of the creed. Christ died for our sins, just as the scriptures said. 
He was buried and was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures said. He was seen by Peter and then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time. I think this next part is probably Paul inserting a comment for the Corinthians, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. And Creed. Then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. Okay, so this is a statement of truth that was recited together, it would seem at least, by the earliest of the church. Paul's recounting it to the Corinthians, saying, this is what we've believed, it's what I preached, it's what you've believed. And he goes on to say this. Last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I also saw him, referring to Jesus, for I am the least of all the apostles. In fact, I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle after the way I persecuted God's church. So how is this good news? It's it's good because Christ died for our sins. Paul's speaking here about Jesus becoming a substitute. He died for my sin. He took the penalty that should have come against me. For my rebellion, my selfishness, my self-centeredness. Jesus took the guilt from all of my no's, all of the mine moments of my life, but I had to turn, instead of no, had to say yes. Instead of mine, had to say yours. Your kingdom. Your will. Not mine anymore. It's good news because Christ died for our sins. Paul says it's good news because it's reliable. Paul is passing along to us what those who walked with Jesus had given to him. And then it's good news because it happened just as the scriptures said. Paul's saying here that we can trust this news because it stands upon a worthy foundation. It's a continuation of that, which God had already been doing throughout the centuries that preceded the coming of Jesus. It falls in line with the ancient writings of the Hebrew people. There's substance to this. It's a worthy foundation upon which to build your life. Let me share just a few examples of how the Old Testament anticipated Jesus. I'm going to go back to the very beginning. Genesis, first book of the Old Testament, chapter 3, verse 15. God speaking to the serpent, the devil. He says this, I, God, will cause hostility between you, the devil, and the woman between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head, the devil's head. You will strike his heel, a flesh wound. Prophecy. The Messiah spoken of in advance. Let me share another one here. 650 years before the coming of Jesus, the prophet Isaiah anticipated that the Messiah would come as the suffering servant. Several passages in Isaiah that speak about this. And then when Jesus was teaching in the synagogue of his hometown of Nazareth, the one he grew up in, he opened to Isaiah 61. And he said, today this is fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, I am the fulfillment of this 650-year-old prophecy. Let me read it for you. Isaiah 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord, God, is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring Good news. Would you say that with me? Good news to the poor. 
He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and to open the prison to those who are bound, the prison of those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Do you hear the hope in that? Like, like since the Old Testament anticipation was a message of hope that, that God was going to intervene in the brokenness of the world. In fact, he would come, wasn't clearly understood until it happened, but he would come and he would intervene and he would bring hope. He would bring good news. He would bring the gospel. We read about it in Isaiah hundreds of years before. We can read about it in Genesis several thousand years before, 1,400 years before written. The prophets anticipated Jesus' crucifixion, Isaiah 52, 13. They anticipated his resurrection, Psalm 110. And in this very early creed that Paul has been inviting the church in Corinth to, to recall, he says, the Old Testament even anticipated the third day. The creed goes like this. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures said. Now, the third day throughout the Hebrew scriptures what was this historic idea that God does huge things on the third day. Abraham, Father Abraham, back in Genesis, went three days' journey to find Mount Moriah, and on the third day he encountered God on that mountain. Genesis 22. Joseph, remember Joseph, coat of many colors? Joseph released his brothers from prison on the third day, Genesis 42. Queen Esther, Queen Esther went to three days of prayer and fasting, and on the third day she approached the king of Persia to plea for the, the saving of her people. Prophet Jonah was in the belly of a fish, the great fish, for three days before he was finally ready to do God's will. He was finally ready to listen to God. <laughs> Up on the shores. Okay, enough of that story. Paul may have been thinking of the Old Testament prophet Hosea's word. Hosea chapter 6, verse 2, when he says just about the third day. Listen to what Hosea prophesied. After two days, the Lord will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up so that we may live before him. Here's the point. Here's the point. The resurrection didn't just happen. This was something that was anticipated since the dawn of time, the beginnings of the human race. It was an event that would be built on this enormous foundation of God's revelation to humanity, calling us back to himself. The superstructure of the church would be built on a secure, established Sure foundation established through this Old Testament anticipation. I've just scratched the surface. And it was fulfilled, the expectation was fulfilled through the coming, through the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus. Good foundation. Sure foundation. Utterly reliable foundation. When I was 
When I was 14, 13, 14 years old, I started working for a custom builder in uh, the community that I grew up in. My first day of work, it was a Saturday in September, um, they were laying a cinder block foundation for a structure that, that they'd been contracted to build. And I was like just a helper, right? So, so uh, my job was to lay out the cinder blocks and was to fill the mortar boards that would bind the block together. Of course, the week before, um, the, the, found, the footings had been poured. A couple feet wide, six to eight inches deep concrete. Week before that, it had all been excavated. They dug down in the dirt until they got to good, original, raw, solid earth that they could put the footings on, and then they laid out the cinder blocks and laid them down block by block by block and built a foundation that was worthy. I got home that night. I had never been so exhausted in my tender 14 years. I tell you, I don't even know how I managed to get into the shower and then flop into bed, and for the next two, three, four days, nurse muscles I didn't know I had. Holy smokes. And then the next Saturday, we got up and did it again. It was a good foundation. It was worthy to build a superstructure on that would endure. The gospel is good news. Why? Because it saves you. It will save you. If you will turn to Jesus, you will be saved. The gospel is good news. How? Because it's built on a worthy, substantial foundation. But what does it mean? What does it mean? It means that this good news has the ability to transform us. Transform us now and into and through eternity. Listen to how Paul describes his own transformation here. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 9. He says, I'm the least important of all the apostles. I don't deserve to be called an apostle because I harassed God's church. I am what I am by God's grace, and God's grace hasn't been for nothing. In fact, I have worked harder than all the others. That is, not, it wasn't me, but the grace of God that is with me. So then, whether you heard the message from me or from them, these other apostles you've been talking about, this is what we preach, and this is what we have believed. This was a radical transformation for Paul. He went from radical religious extremist to pastor. Maybe you say, is there any difference? What's the difference? Well, the pastors are trying to save people. None of us are trying to, 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 to take them out. This good news, it, it, it is good news because Jesus promises to make you into the best version of you possible. He took Paul and took all of who he had been, all of his study, all of his excellence that was misdirected and God worked a renovation in his life that utterly transformed him enormously impacted first century church and it's continued to impact every generation since God looks into you and he sees all of the potential that he created you all of that stuff that he placed there, he says, I want, I want to realize that. I want to activate that. I want you to become all that I've intended you to be. But it doesn't happen until we are reunited with our maker. Then all of his intent, all of his potential can begin to be 
empowered, shaped, molded, matured in you and in me. That was Paul's experience. And he longed for the, the, the church in Corinth to experience it. And I long for you to experience this too, this Resurrection Sunday. Jesus wants to begin your renovation today. He wants you to live full and meaningful, eternally significant life now. And Jesus has so much more in store for you then, when you die. Sorry for raising such a tender subject. You know you're going to die, right? Human mortality is the cause of 100% of the deaths in our world. Right? Next Sunday, we're going to actually talk about what comes after death. We're going to begin talking about Jesus' resurrection and by extension, our resurrection. It's an exciting subject. But Jesus has so much for you now that I long for you to live into and through. I mean, following Jesus is more than just hold on through the storm, hope and pray that somehow you survive. Following Jesus is, is more than just grin and bear it religion. The hope of the Christian life is that, that we can become genuinely better human beings here and now. Our ambition, in fact, when we turn to Jesus is that we begin to look more like Jesus, that increasingly people mistake us for him. If you imagine a world made up of a a bunch of people who live and behave and serve others the way Jesus did, it's a little hard to imagine in the brokenness of the world that we're in, but maybe we can start with just us. Like maybe we can say, look, I I can't, I'm limited in how much I can affect, but this much I can do. As for me, as for the people around me, can we look a little more like Jesus today and a little more like Jesus tomorrow and live a little more like Jesus today, a little more like Jesus tomorrow and begin to see that kind of renovation take place built on the foundation that has been established for us in Christ because we have the hope of being saved through Jesus. The reason that we come together as a church Sunday after Sunday. The church, the gathering of those who want to follow Jesus, want to become more like Jesus. The reason we come together is so that we can then go out and do the work of Jesus. Having experienced him, having been encouraged by him, having been instructed by him, we now go where we work, live, and play, and we get to to represent him. This is all really, really, really good news. (laughs) 